Hey, yo, is this thing on? Hello, is your shit working? Yo, this is your fucking boy, Ian Barr. Just wanted to give a big fucking shout out. Let you know I've been listening to this shit since day one, son. Huge fucking fan. Tattoo Wise Guys Hideaway on my fucking neck. Play this shit at my fucking funeral. You understand me? You feeling what the fuck I'm saying? Hey, Ma, shut the fuck up. I'm on the phone. You hear me? Hey. God damn, let me get some fucking privacy. Oh. By the way, this your boy Tony the fucking Tiger Tapadaglio from the mean streets of Emmett, Michigan, boy, coming to you live. Listen, you need to do a fucking scoop, one of these fucking shindig episodes on the street legend, Louis Bagadonas Galante, all right? We've been running this shit for a goddamn hot minute. Holler at your fucking boy! Hey, I'll be back. I've been listening to you every fucking day. I gotta go pick up a fucking bag. I'll be back in a little bit. Hey, let's fucking roll! What's going on there, everybody? Welcome to Wise Guys Hideaway again. I'm your host, Ian Barr, and today we're going to be talking about one of the deadliest sons of bitches there in the bootleg era, Dutch Schultz. Now, before we get into that, I'm going to give my shout-outs here real quick. got to give a big shout-out to Arthane Clothing Apparel. Got to give a shout-out to Scout M. Bernstein, Gunnar Lindblom, Dave Randazzo, you know, Ronnie the Cockroach. Uh, my boy who did the whole plug beforehand for this, uh, Tony the Tiger, a.k.a. Wolfgang Horan. That shit was hilarious. Thanks, brother. Uh, big shout out to the rest of my friends and family who are listening. You know, I love you guys. Thanks for all the support. And uh, we're going to get into this here. Now, Dutch Schultz wasn't born Dutch Schultz. It's actually a name he would sort of just acquire. Not acquire, he would give himself. It's not really acquiring. <laughs> but he was actually born Arthur Simon Flugenheimer. Uh, born, he was uh, German Jewish, actually, which I, I fucked up on an earlier podcast. I was describing Dutch Schultz. And I think the Luciano podcast or one of them, and I referred to him as an Irish gangster just because he always worked out of Hell's Kitchen and worked with guys like Oni Madden and stuff. I just, uh, I always forget that yeah, he was German-Jewish, you know, and uh, which is a very odd combination, uh, for especially for the time period. But, I mean, it happens. Now, he was born to both his father, uh, Herman, and his mother, Emma. He would have a younger sister, Helen, but eventually... Around 1910, uh, Dutch's family, or Dutch's family, Dutch's father, Herman, actually just uh, up and abandons the family. You know, this is back when guys could really leave for cigarettes and just never come home, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's it's uh, it's a rough era. So, I mean, Dutch always kind of resented him for that. And actually, really, really early on, about 7th or 8th grade, feels that he needs to help provide for his family better. So he drops out of school and uh, actually is one of the few you know, bootleggers, criminals, wise guys, mobsters, whatever you want to call them, who really did try to live like a legitimate life right out of the gate. He actually even worked for such companies as American Express, as well as a trunking company uh, out of the Bronx that was actually named Schultz's Trucking, which is where he would eventually, you know, sort of steal the, the whatever, uh, what would you call it, a surname? Or what, what is it that writers go by when they uh, don't actually write their books? I don't know. Anyway, but he, yeah, he would work for uh, American Express and that trucking company. Now, he, he would hold down jobs from around 1916 to around 1919. And then around 1919, just before Prohibition, you know, sort of hits and hits hard, uh, Schultz begins working for a nightclub owner. It's kind of like an, a bouncer, enforcer type, you know, individual. And through the nightclub owner, he would begin to, you know, fall into the rackets. The nightclub owner was a low-level mobster. And eventually Schultz begins holding up crap games, you know, committing burglaries, home invasions, things like, things of that nature. And then eventually at 18, he's arrested for burglary and uh, sent to Blackwater Island, which is now Roosevelt Island uh, today. 
and uh, he's sentenced to I think it was any I think it was three years, three years, four years for burglary, and uh, he I mean he would serve his time. He he wouldn't you know turn state's evidence. He can't rat on any of his cohorts, nothing like that. And eventually on December eighth, nineteen twenty, he's paroled and he returns to the trucking company for a, a little bit of time. Prohibition has kind of kicked in and. Schultz begins to make some connections with some Jewish gangsters, some Irish gangsters, some Italian gangsters, and really gets the ball rolling and eventually leaves the trucking company. Now, in the mid-1920s, Schultz begins bouncing at the Hub Social Club, which is a Bronx speakeasy, and it's run by a a very known gangster in the neighborhood by the name of Joey No. And he sort of takes a liking to Schultz. He likes Schultz's eager attitude. Uh, Schultz wasn't afraid to get violent with anybody. I mean, he would take it to anybody real quick. He had a very short temper uh, and a very, very good memory. If if somebody fucked him over, you know, struck a foul chord with him, Schultz would remember it. It wasn't a, it wasn't something he let, you know, just kind of slide off his back easy. It's around this time too that Schultz changes his name from Arthur to Dutch Schultz. He begins, you know, going by Dutch Schultz when he sort of becomes involved in the rackets. Now. No and Schultz sort of begin like an equal partnership. Like no really takes a liking to Schultz. And eventually they begin to have a conflict with the Rock brothers, John and Joe Rock, who are rival bootleggers from the Bronx area. And so Schultz, to prove his his willingness to the gang and his willingness, you know, to know and like the industry they have, uh, kidnaps and tortures the younger of the two brothers, Joe Rock, and only actually releases him after the family pays a $35,000 ransom. Which in those times was, I mean, that I mean that's no small, no small cookie. Let me tell you. Now, the two of them, Noah and Schultz, they expand their business from just in the Bronx to Manhattan's Upper West Side. Now there was a lot of fancy, high to do people hanging out around the West Side around this time, and they were really like where where your money was. I mean, the Manhattan's Lower East Side, Manhattan in general, really was really hopping during this period because it seems like any of the research I've done, Manhattan's Lower East Side. And then on their upper, upper West Side, guys were making buku bucks from bootlegging. Like, the, the speakeasies around there were, I mean, the liquor was flowing like the rivers of Capistrana. I mean, it was it's just out of, out of control how much liquor was around. Now, they would eventually set up headquarters at East 149th Street when they moved to the West Side. And this would really kind of strike a foul chord with legendary Irish mobster uh, Jack Legs Diamond, who would sort of begin war with the two. Now, on October 16th, 1928, Noah is uh, shot several times outside the Chateau Madrin, uh, which was a speakeasy at 231 uh, West 54th Street. And even though Noah returns fire, uh, killing his would-be assassin, Louis Weinberg, he would actually end up dying himself from infection, which would happen on November 2nd, 1928. Now, after this, Schultz is just distraught. He's pissed off. He's angry. And uh, he wants to get revenge on the people who have killed his mentor. Now, ironically enough, the person who he believed to be responsible for killing his mentor was none other than sort of the mentor to the men who would create organized crime, Arnold the Brain Rothstein. And uh, November 6, 1928, uh, Rothstein's killed by George Hunt McManus, an Irish gangster, over what is it like legendarily disputed as a gambling debt, but a lot of people believe that Schultz hired McManus to exact revenge for Noah's death. Uh, it's not really sure. It's kind of all sort of left up to, you know, criminal fable. But, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. Schultz is not fucking afraid of anybody. I mean, from Luciano to Rossi. That's one thing I can say about Dutch Schultz is all the research I've done on him, 
I can tell you for a hundred percent fact that Dutch Schultz was not afraid of anybody that that I can think of anyway. I mean, everybody's afraid of somebody, I'm sure, but I mean, this guy sure didn't fucking show it. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. And uh, I mean, he wouldn't even show it so much that like he not only would he be alleged with setting up the Rothstein hit, but he also be alleged with setting up the hit on uh, Legs Diamond. On October 12, 1930, Legs Diamond was shot at the Hotel uh, Monticello on Manhattan's west side. Uh, he would live through that and recover. However, later later in, uh, down the road on de- in December of 1931, Legs is shot again uh, at, a, at a house on 67 Dove Street. And, I mean, Schultz just wouldn't, you know, would not stop killing. And uh, a lot of these killings were done by another individual we've already done a podcast on, Vincent Mad Dog Cole. And he, he was, a, I mean, he was one of Schultz's right-hand men, except eventually a mad dog would turn on him, and Schultz wouldn't take that line down either. And in February of 1932, between Oney Madden and Dutch Schultz, I mean, they'd have Vincent Cole killed as well. So, I mean, these guys just did not stop. I mean, Dutch Schultz was, was so ruthless that during the mid-30s, when Thomas E. Dewey sort of began setting his sights on Dutch, uh, Dutch is one of the few people who ever thought to have a fucking federal po- prosecutor taken out. He didn't care. He just didn't care. I mean, uh, in late summer of 35, they would, you know, sort of bring uh, a tax evasion case to him. Uh, I mean, no, excuse me. It would be in late 34, they would bring a tax evasion case to him. It would last for roughly a year. And then in, in the late summer of 1935, Schultz would eventually be acquitted on that. But, I mean, Dewey just wouldn't let up on him. So they he did sort of get a, he was getting a plan together to have Thomas E. Dewey eliminated because he was really the first one on Dewey's sites. Dewey would eventually begin to fall. He, he wanted to dismantle all of organized crime, but he, he, he started with Dutch Schultz. Why I'm unsure. I don't know if it was Dutch Schultz's violent temper, just the notoriety he had, or because he was an easier target than, you know, the Italians and the Jewish, uh, gangsters like Lansky or Luciano. Um, but either way, it, it would frustrate Schultz so much that eventually he he would plot to have him killed. And I don't know how it slipped to Albert Anastasia, but once it slipped to Albert Anastasia and worked its way back to Luciano, Luciano and the powers that be said, well, I mean, fuck him, he's got to go. So on October 23rd, 1935, at the Palace Chop House at 12 East Park Street, Newark, New Jersey, uh, along with his lieutenant, his bodyguard, and his accountant, Schultz is sitting there, you know, sort of having a meal having a chat, trying to figure out what to do with all this tension that's going around. And shooters burst through the door and pop him full of lead. Now, Schultz lives, and he manages to live all the way to the hospital. And doctors look him over. And then, eventually, he gets baptized on October 24th, 1935, before he's set in for surgery. And during surgery on October 24th, 1935, uh, he passes away. Due to his injuries. Now, Dutch Schultz has some of the most famous, craziest, most confused, drugged up last words that have ever been muttered by a wise guy. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read them to you here, but I've always wondered what it was about it that if it was like poison in his blood from, you know, the having been shot, just various diseases people had, anesthetics. But nonetheless, Dutch Schultz's last words on this planet were a boy has never wept nor dashed a thousand kin. You can play jacks and girls do that with a softball and do tricks with it. Oh, oh, dog biscuits. And when he is happy, he doesn't get sappy. That's all of us. We're here at Wise Guys. Have a hideaway, everybody. Thanks for joining me. Have a good one.